Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we are hearing from someone I've gotten quite a few requests for over the years, actually. It's Frankie Previtt. Now, Frankie Previtt, do I know that name? Yes, you do. Let me explain why. So in the 70s, he starts out in this band called Bull Angus. They don't really go anywhere. But in the early 80s, he forms a group called Frankie and the Knockouts. And they have some success. They put out three albums in the early 80s in that just totally awesome foreigner Boston type, you know, meat potatoes, AOR, rock and roll. Great stuff. And they have three top 40 hits. There's You're My Girl, there's Without You, and the biggest one was Sweetheart. You may remember some of these songs. So they do okay, you know, not taking the world by storm, you know, sort of barely making it by. And then all of a sudden he gets an opportunity through a friend of his to submit a couple of songs to a movie his buddy's working on called Dirty Dancing, and the rest is history. He re- he records and submits Hungry Eyes and this tune right here, I've Had the Time of My Life. In fact, this is his original recording of that song that he submitted that was eventually, as you know, made famous by Jennifer Warrens and Bill Medley. And uh, that was basically like li- like winning the lottery. He wins an Oscar, he wins all kinds of awards. It's one of the most played songs in history and his life is never the same after that and uh he wins an oscar and everything else so from there he's really been able to do whatever he wants ever since uh these days he's currently working on a musical which he talks about in here he sort of describes what you know the story is and what that's all about and just in the last few months they've released a three disc box set of frankie and the knockouts music All three of their albums are remastered, they sound great, and there's a bunch of bonus material on there as well. I mean, just imagine, guys. You know, you you write a couple of songs, you don't know. 
And they go on to be gigantic and change everything, you know? It, it's really a one in a million, one in a billion type of story, honestly. honestly. I've always called him Frankie Previte. He corrects me in here eventually. It's Frankie Previt. He's a good dude. He called me from his home in the Jersey Shore. Well, Frankie, look, I know that the, you know, the Mount Olympus of your story is all relating to Dirty Dancing, but I really love Frankie and the Knockouts. And so well, I wanted you. to, I want to start there and I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, but for mm -hmm. starters, let's get some of the promotion out of the way. There's a big three disc box set coming out soon, right? Let's talk about it. What's happening exactly? Yeah, you know, I got uh, sounded by Friday Music. Uh, Joe Ragoso called me up and said, you know what, I'm a big, you know, record collector. I have a record label. I have, you know, from Todd Rundgren to, I mean, he has like a thousand different artists that he puts out <clears throat> their, their older stuff. And he goes, I don't think we've ever done or anyone has ever done the full collection all mm -hmm. three Frankie and the knockout records. And I said, no, I don't think that's, that's happened either. Mm -hmm. And uh, he goes, would you be interested in doing that? And I said, yeah, that I said, that sounds like it's interesting. And the reason why it was interesting to me, because I said to him, if I do it, can I add um, some, or, some original songs that never made the knockout record? Oh, nice. And some 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 songs that I wrote back when I was in a band called Bull Angus on Mercury Records. Yep. And, and you know when I became an R and B singer and Tony Camillo produced me for Buddha, mm -hmm. he says you can pick out as many of those songs as you want to pick out. And I said, and can I put some live Frankie and the Knockouts tracks on there? And he goes, sure. He goes, why is that important? And I said, because when when we first put out Sweetheart. That was the last song I wrote for uh, the first album. I brought it into Timmy Einer, who was the president of Millennium Records, uh, said to me, you know, it's, it's a great song. It sounds like it could be a hit record, but, you know, it's a very pop song. Hmm. And you want to be a rock and roll band. And that's what your other songs kind of sound like. And he goes, you sure you want to put that bullet in the gun? Hmm. And I said, put it in the gun. Hmm. So nice. the, reason why, the reason why I say that is because when you first write a song and record it you don't really have the same energy as when you play it out and you've played it out for like two or three months 
mm-hmm. and and the band takes on this edge to the song, and the arrangements get tweaked. And so I said, you know what? I, I'd like people to hear how Sweetheart and Without You and some of these Frankie and the Knockout songs sounded in concert yeah. as opposed to how they sounded on, you know, a record. On this collection is six live tracks. That's great. And um, the, these unreleased uh, other demos are songs that I wrote through the years. They're kind of like my musical history yeah. of, of you know, starting back in, in the mid-70s and then going through Frankie and the Knockouts and then winning an Academy Award. Mm-hmm. And then after, you know, I started writing with uh, Chasm Sultan uh, from Todd Rundgren's band mm-hmm. and Mark Rivera from Billy Joel's band. Love them, yeah. Yeah, and and so we started writing together, and we had a, a band. We started to try to formulate a band, and it was called Brave New World. There was myself singing and Chasm singing, and there was a, another guy, Tony Beard, who was a drummer from England, and he was a singer. And so, um, you know, I just had a bunch of songs from that group, and I said, you know what, I'm going to stick a song from them on there. Great. And so, you know, it kind of gives me a musical, yeah. gives the fans a musical history of me, um, you know, from 
you know, my first starting of Bull Angus, my releasing right. of my first records, right on through to the Academy Awards and beyond. That's amazing. So this is, I mean, it goes, it's beyond just a Frankie and the Knockouts box. This is a Frankie Pravit, like, story. This is the Frankie story, basically, start to finish. Pretty pretty much. That's amazing. And uh, also what has happened was that, you know, our third record, Making the Point, um, so Jimmy Einer came to me when that record was done and said, listen, I'm trying to get a deal, uh, 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 re-up my deal with RCA. And if I don't get the amount of dollars that I need to really promote my bands, I'm just going to, I'm going to close up shop and go into film. Mm. And I said, okay. So, you know, we finished the record and he came to me and said, oh, you know what? Uh, I'm going to sell off all my acts. And uh, I just sold you guys to MCA. So I said, oh, okay. The third mm-hmm. record is going to be on M- MCA. So we go there and uh, MCA says, you know what? We, we'd like you to sound like Night Ranger. Oh. Go, why, why would you want us to sound like Night Ranger? They're on your label. Yeah. And there, there must have been something going on where they were going to lose Night Ranger, or I'm not sure what was happening. Huh. But they brought in Night Ranger's producer, and he took a track, and it was like a harder-edged track uh, called Outrageous. We're going to make this the first single. I said, That's a mistake. And they go, well, what do you mean? And I said, radio's not going to really be ready for that song to be the first single. Yeah. There are songs like Come Rain or Shine. There's uh, One Good Reason. There's Blame It On My Heart. There's, you know, many other songs that you could pick that radio would embrace and then come out with maybe something a little harder as a second or third choice. And they went, no, no, we're going we're gonna to come out with this song. So they did, and radio was like, no way. This yeah. is not Frankie and the Knockouts. Yeah. And that was the end of the band. So, you know, I was in California, and all this, uh, you know, kind of started to happen. Tico had given me a call, uh, Tico Torres, who's now yeah. the drummer with Bon Jovi. And he was a drummer. And he said, listen, there's this kid, uh, Bon Jovi something, and he wants me to do some demos. And I got a chance to make a few bucks. You mind if I do these <laughs> demos? And I'm like, go make some money. Yeah. But Tico's, Tico's still making money. 
Yeah, he sure is. Right? Plenty of money. So, so you know what? It gives it a chance. Now, that third record, making the point that didn't really see a light of day. When when Joe Isco said to me, uh, you want to do the three together? I said, well, maybe there's new life that people can hear. Well, good. And and what's what's even more ironic was... uh, as they after they dropped this, I started writing and trying to get another deal, and I wrote Hungry Eyes for the yeah. next fourth knockout record that never happened. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Jimmy Einer out of the blue called me two years later and said, "You know, I got this little movie I would like you to write a song for." And I said, "Jimmy, I'm too busy, man, mm-hmm. I'm trying to get a deal. You know, I'm I'm writing here." He goes, "Make time. This is going to change your life." Is it? Well, now, okay, so that, that, uh, sorry to interrupt, but that's what I really want to know, because Dirty Dancing, to me, seemed like a phenomenon that sort of took everyone by surprise. You know, it wasn't some huge budgeted, you know, full of stars kind of spectacle. This was a little kind of quieter movie that became a phenomenon, and so did the music. So... When he said that to you, when he said this is going to change your life and it's a big deal, was that just because he thought getting into the music or the movie business was going to change your life? Or did, was, did he have big expectations for that movie and that soundtrack? Um, you know, that's a good question because anything that Jimmy does, he has big expectations mm. for or he doesn't or he doesn't do it. Okay. But I think he was, the, he was the only one that had those expectations because Vestron Films, was only going to put out the movie for two weeks, and then they were going to send it directly to DVD. Oh. And so uh, within two weeks, when that movie came out, 300,000 records got backordered. And before RCA could print a record, there was a million records backordered. So there was no promotion. There was like, just throw it out there and let's see what happens, and then we'll go to DVD right away. And so Joe Public created that phenomenon. Patrick Swayze, Jennifer Grey, the song, all those elements created this phenomenon. When when I met Patrick Swayze at the Academy Awards, he said to me, "I, I need to talk to you about the song. I said, what's up? And he said, you know, the song really changed everything for us. And I said, how? He goes, we listened to 149 songs and turned them all down. Yours was the 150th song, and we filmed out of sequence. So we filmed the last scene first. And he goes, so we were getting ready to dance to a Lionel Richie track. And we were like, let's get this movie over with. This is not happening. Not that it was a bad song that Lionel Richie, it just wasn't their song. Yeah. And he goes, so your cassette came in, and we listened to you sing Time of My Life with that girl. And I said, yeah, Rochelle Capelli. And he goes, we said, we're making a movie to that song. And he goes, at the end of the day, at the end of filming that day, we just all looked at each other and went, oh, my God, let's go make a movie. Really? Hearing your, basically a demo of that song changed everything for them. That's what he said to me. That's amazing. Now, I got to tell you, Frankie, I in, I mean, I've always loved the band, but I've been listening to a lot of it again lately to get ready to talk. And mm-hmm. as great a singer and songwriter as you are, I don't, 
I don't see too many signifiers in the knockouts canon that would have sh shown what was going to come. You know, it that uh, time of my life and Hungry, well, Hungry Guys is a little more, I, especially your version of it, I think, in keeping with something the knockouts right. might have put out. But uh, time of my life sounds very different. Were you in a, was it like a manic state of, of inspiration? Were you trying to write like a different person? How did it even happen? Well, um, first of all, I had about $100 in my bank account. So that's another good reason to oh, write, nice. <laughs> keep writing. Uh, when, so when Jimmy called me and I told him I was biz, too busy and he said, this is going to change your life. I said, uh, okay what's the name of the movie? And he says, Dirty Dancing. And I put my hand on my forehead and I went, oh my God, Jimmy's doing porn. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes, no, 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 no. It's, it, it's really a good little movie. And he gives me Johnny Meets Baby and the father doesn't like him and it's in the Catskills. Mm -hmm. That's it. And he goes, so the good news is I'm asking you to write a song. The bad news is the scene is seven minutes, so you're going to have to write a seven-minute song. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, MacArthur Park. i got to write MacArthur <laughs> Park. You know, <clears throat> he's like, yeah, it's got to be, like, dancey, you know, and it's got to uh -huh. have, you know, they're going to dance to it. So I called John Nicola, who I wrote Hungry Eyes with, and I mm -hmm. said, John, we have an opportunity. And, you know, it has to be have kind of a dancey, Latin-y kind of groove to it. And um, I said, let's do this. Being that it has to be seven minutes long, let's start the song in halftime up front with the chorus, and then mm -hmm. we'll double time the downbeat of the verse. And uh, so John uh, sent me a track, and um, he, he w had worked on it a little bit with uh, Don Markowitz. And in the car, exit 140, on the Garden State Parkway, playing oh this cassette, I started jamming with a little tape recorder and, and going, nin, nin, and I'm of my life. Nin, nin, and I'm of my life. What the, what the hell am I saying? <laughs> and I, I scribbled time of my life on an envelope. And that's okay. where the seed of that song began. And the man upstairs wrote the rest of the song because okay. I didn't know what the movie was really about. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when you wrote, was the expectation going into all of this that it would be your voice that would eventually go on the soundtrack and be played on the radio? Because, you know, there's not that much of a difference between your version and what and the Bill Medley, Jennifer Warren's version, a little maybe a little punchier horns or something like that. Not a lot, though. So did yeah, you think well, this you were going to be singing it? I was asked to sing Hungry Eyes, but that, uh, that's a whole other story. Magical Phantom 
time in my life. I think that they it was a, a really great move that they uh, decided to get the common thread of a, a 1960 time mm. uh, piece with a 1960s star voice of Bill Medley. Got it. That so makes sense. Bill Medley, Bill Medley was like, you know, the blue-eyed soul guy that I listened to and learned from mm-hmm. <clears throat> back then. And, and for me, it was like him and the Rascals and, and, and you know, all these R&B, you know, Temptations and all, all these groups. Yeah. So to get that common thread of his voice with a, with a more pop mod, modern song uh, made it connect. Mm-hmm. And, and so I thought that was a great idea, even though everybody from Patrick on down to Eleanor Bergstein, who wrote Dirty Dancing, all had demo-itis. Oh, they were really? like, oh, we love Frankie's version. We love uh-huh. Frankie's voice. And, and you know, to today, El- Eleanor, when I see her, she goes, oh, your demo. I still love your demo. <laughs> <laughs> so there was no, I mean, were you disappointed when you found out it wasn't going to be you? Or were there, like, no hard feelings? Or did you even well, notice you know, or care? Yeah, finding out it was Bill Medley, you know. Yeah, that made it easier. It made it real easy for me because that was like a, you know, an iconic voice that I, you know, grew up on and and emulated. And, and, you know, Blue-Eyed Soul and Bobby Hatfield more than than Bill Medley. Sure. You know, because I was a tenor. But, you know, when when, uh, Bill Medley first heard the song, he turned it down. Yeah. And so he said, no, nah, I'm done with duets. I don't want to sing this song. And how the hell am I going to hit those notes? <laughs> you know? And they said, Bill, yeah. just sing it down and I'll have oh, the time of my life. You know? Right. Oh, okay. Do you know if they considered other people? Do you know who else maybe was on the list of possibilities to sing that song? I don't. I okay. don't. But I know that that he was their first choice. And even though he said no, uh, I think that um, uh, Kenny Ortega and, and uh, Michael Lloyd and Jimmy Einer kind of sat with him and, and uh, okay. said to him, you know what, we're going to have Jennifer Warren sing on this. She's, you know, this song, this song has the potential of either being a major flop or it could be an Academy Awards song. Jimmy yeah. said that. Huh. Now, and, Excuse me. I mean, do you know was Jennifer Warren's the first choice? Because she's she's yeah. had a good career, but she was never like a major star or anything, you know. No, but she sang on other Academy Award winning songs. Yeah, yeah, good point. Up, okay, you know, up where we belong. I think she was on. She was on. Yeah, some, uh, you know, Joe Cocker. Yep, that's the one. You're right. I had never put that together, but you're right. Uh-huh. She was a known known success in that area, so yeah. why not use her yeah. again? Okay, got it. Yep. Um, so then let's talk then about the Hungry Eyes story a little bit more. You mentioned that that had been sort of a demo you had been hanging on to with intentions to put it out as the next Frankie album. Hey, gang, let me break in here for a minute. I haven't done a midsection for a while. Plus, it gives you an opportunity to hear more of Frankie's original version of Hungry Eyes. I thought that'd be really interesting. Uh, first of all, I feel like I should update everybody on our inclusion in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, it ended up being not that big of a deal, but also, a, but a, nonetheless, a really cool experience. So Saturday night, as I mentioned, I don't, I don't have HBO, but I have a buddy's HBO Go password, and so I was meaning to over the weekend at some point cast it 
on the TV or whatever and see for myself if we were in there somewhere. But thankfully, Michael Bagford, one of our listeners, hi, Mike. Hey, Michael. Uh, tweeted out that he saw a, a picture of us in the credits. Said John Lamoureux slash The Hustle Podcast. And so I immediately pulled it up on my phone, casted it to the, to the TV, watched the Zombies induction video, and uh, I didn't recognize anything. Uh, they did mention, you know, voice of Chris White a couple of times, and there were a couple parts that sounded kind of like somebody was calling in on a long-distance phone line or something, which is what I assumed would have been our uh, portion of the, of the video because that's kind of the sound quality of ours. But I didn't hear anything that that stood out to me. I know I didn't hear my own voice. And I even went back and listened to Chris's interview right afterwards, and I didn't find anything. So I assumed maybe we just didn't make it and they were sort of thanking us. But good old Andy Shaw, our <laughs> the uh, super fan extraordinaire, uh, let me know that, yes, there was a line or two, just like five seconds worth of Chris talking that came from our interview. So we're there, you know? We're there, we made the credits. Uh, you know, does it change the world or anything? No, but it's kind of a fun thing. Plus, that's this past Saturday, uh, the check came. We also got that $200 check from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So it was kind of a cool experience, you know? I mean, I, you know, who? it's probably not going to, you know, increase the numbers or anything like that, but it's a really fun thing for Yan and I to be able to say that this happened to us. So anyway, I'm glad that happened. I'm really honored. Uh, I wanted to read a couple of reviews. It's been a while since I've read any. Frankly, it's been a while since we've had any. We need more reviews from you people. But uh, I'll read the four most recent. The first one's the, from The First Noel, 19, my favorite podcast. I think that might be Noel uh, from Reliving My Youth. He and I are recording another soundtrack uh, episode, by the way. This time we're doing the 90s. Uh, I could be wrong, but I think it might be him. Anyway, it says, I discovered this podcast a couple of years ago, and I'm glad I did. John and I share the same musical tastes. He has a way of getting his guests to open up and reveal things they may not even wanted to talk about. I highly recommend The Hustle. Thank you, First Noel 19, assuming that's Noel. Uh, Mugs and Jugs. My new favorite bands are old favorite bands. Five stars. I'm a newcomer to John's podcasts, but I'm hooked. He cured, uh, curated a bunch of great conversations with artists that were touched by the light. Some got brighter, others faded away, but all the memories are better with the passage of time. Dig around in the bin and pull out a few episodes. You'll be hustling in no time. I like that. Thank you, Mugs and Jugs. Big Daddy Bees. A podcast masterpiece. Goodness. Five stars. I don't know who Big Daddy Bees is either. Maybe I do. I don't know. The Hustle Podcast is in a class all by itself. It is parts VH1, Behind the Music, a career retrospective, and where are they now type of show. Uh, that's exactly my definition, by the way. My feeling on this is like, Behind the music's for everybody. You know what I mean? Like, let's give everybody a behind the music. That's my thinking. Anyway, the host, former journalist John Lamoureux, does a great job asking the questions the listener wants to hear from the guest. 
John also does a very respectful job of asking questions about the business side of the music business. The guests on the show have ranged from Jim Babjack of the Smithereens to rapper Dana Dane to Eddie McDonald of The Alarm to country singer Lee Greenwood. That's one of my proudest moments, by the way. Talk about range. I know I look forward to Tuesdays when a new episode will be available. Thank you, Big Daddy Bees. Lastly, I'm going to go with Qster. I think it is. The Fans Podcast. Five stars. My abiding takeaway is always, if I had the chops to make a podcast, this is what I'd make. If John had not done it first and best. That's really nice. Really informal. Really passionate. Really sincere. Great stories from the long tail of the music scene. Thank you, Qster. That is so sweet of you. By the way, I found out recently, thanks to Brian Lennon from the Permanent Record Podcast, that uh, there are reviews on, like, iTunes UK, iTunes Canada, iTunes Mexico, iTunes Australia. So I found kind of some stragglers out there that I may have to incorporate, especially uh, since we're kind of out of iTunes reviews now. There are some Facebook reviews that I could read and will do here soon. But anyway... Uh, So I'm going to go into those, but as always, guys, we love it when you leave us reviews. They don't have to be good ones. You can give me whatever you want. Give us whatever you want, but they are so appreciative. So uh, thank you for all your, for your efforts and for those of you that have done it and uh, hopefully more will do it. Uh, Lastly, I got to say one more plug for the t-shirts. They're out there on Amazon. Um, Just type in the Hustle Podcast merch and there's a bunch of t-shirts, pop sockets, I don't even know what else is on there, but sweatshirts. Uh, go on there, support the podcast if you want, and uh, be a part of the family. We will love you forever if you do. Okay? Let's get back to Frankie. Um, right. Was it a situation where he was like, hey, what else you got? Just give me anything. And and when I asked that, do you all, do, I mean, were they saying that to like 50 other people too? Were they just, I mean, I, they must have had a mountain of songs to choose from, and your two made the cut that's got that's amazing well you know just in that last scene they had 149 yeah yeah that's what i mean you can imagine how many they had for every other scene yeah and um it wasn't jimmy who asked me um for more songs it it came from linda gottlieb who was uh, one of the producers and she says do you have anything else that that uh you you'd like to submit and i said yeah i I have another couple songs so i sent her hungry eyes and then you know, Jimmy called and he goes, they they really want to use Hungry Eyes as well. And he goes, why don't you sing it? And I said, all right. So I, I went over to the uh, Hit Factory and Larry Alexander was uh, like a big time engineer over there. And, and I, so I hired all these guys and got the band back together and said, we're going to go and record Hungry Eyes <clears throat> on Monday. So the Friday before we're going to go record, I got a call from Emil Ardolino, who was the director and he said, I got another scene that I need a song for. Can you come in? And I'm watching the scene. He goes, by the way, what are the BPMs for Hungry Eyes? And that, that means beats per minute. Right. What are the BPMs for, for Hungry Eyes? Because they're having a hard time linking up to the demo. And I'm like, who's having a hard time doing what? <laughs> I'm recording it Monday. And he goes, oh, Bob Summers just became the president of RCA. And... Uh, he, he wants Eric Carmen to sing the song. He goes, I, I, I hate to be, you know, the bearer of bad news and, you know, don't kill the messenger, but you're out. Yeah. Oh, how and, did that feel? 
Well, that that didn't feel great when yeah. you know, hearing that because I, there was a sense of embarrassment that I've already hired all these people and, mm. you know, kind of told everybody to learn the song and we're getting together and the energy of going in and we're going to do, a, you know, possibly another Frankie song. Yeah. So, um, you know, I called Jimmy and I go, what's up, man? And he goes, well, you know, Bob Summers just, you know, signed Eric and, and he thought this song would be a smash hit for him. And, uh, you know, just be thankful you got the song in a movie. I said, I'm very thankful and thank right. you. But it'd be kind of nice to have known this ahead of time and not find out, you know, two days before I'm going, going in to record it. And he goes, yeah. yeah, I guess you're right. I just got overrun here with work and forgot to call you. Mm, bummer. So, you know, okay. hey, listen, um, it, it brought Eric Harmon's career back and, yeah. um, I think it would have done the same for Frankie and the Knockout. I think it would have. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. so that was my next question. Was it? Would it have been a Frankie solo song, or would it have been a Knockout song? Well, any time I did a, a, a record, I kind of always uh, included the band, so I always do, okay. you know, use my guys. And oh, good. He, I didn't he, know if you were kind of venturing off on your own at this point. No, you know, I, I always kind of had an allegiance to my players. Um, when I, when I, even when I got my own record deal, I would split the points with them and I would mm. give them portions of the, the, uh, merchandise. And I, I'm, you know, a believer in that if you share with these people, they're going to own part of it and, yeah. and they'll dig in with you and they'll get in the trench with you. Good. Very good. Mm. Yep. Uh, okay. I, I, I'll tell you this real quick. So, um, I've been doing this podcast for almost four years now. And early on, I had a uh, a guy named George Sipple, who's a Canadian, uh, sorry, a Cleveland musician. And in the mm -hmm. early, late 70s, early 80s, he was a member of this excellent band called American Noise. And um, after they, they only ever put out one album. And it's a, it's a excellent album. After that, he kind of did a lot of session work and everything around Cleveland. And he plays keyboards on the Eric Carmen version of Hungry Eyes. Hungry. Yeah, okay. and I... I pinged him the other day and told him I was talking, I was going to talk to you and if you'd ever met and he said, no. And he said, but tell him thanks for letting me play on his song. And then he said, actually he should thank me because he made a ton of money off the thing that off this hit. <laughs> and so uh, anyway, he wanted me to tell you hello and that he, you owe him a bottle of wine and he will explain why at a later time. So anyway. Uh, well, no problem. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always down for a good bottle of wine. Good. Good. So, I mean, it's one of the things we like to get in here sensitively is the business side of things. Uh, I'll just come right out and say it. And I hope, I'm sorry if this sounds insensitive or indelicate, but you've probably never had to work again. Not that you haven't worked, but your, your mailbox must have just exploded with royalties from that day forward. Right? Well, you know, here, here's the truth of it all. Um, the song won an Academy Award yeah. and on, in the same year, a Golden Globe. And then in the same year, ASCAP Song of the Year. So that means it's the most played song in the world. Yeah. So when, when I say that to you, most played song in the world, every time a song is played, it receives a royalty. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, um, those first few years of, of the song were very you know, lucrative. And obviously, as time goes on, you would think that this song 
would start to lose momentum, but mm-hmm. somehow it hasn't. Yeah. And, and, you know, here, here we are 31 years later, and, and the song still is, uh, as, as far as ASCAP's top 20 songs ever um, in, in the history of them calculating songs, their top 20, it's number 15. That's incredible. So, so the song has, has this life that the public has embraced and will not let go of. Yeah, yeah. What, a, what an honor, and yet also, I mean, it just must feel so strange to, it's like winning the lottery. I mean, it basically is. Absolutely. You Absolutely. did it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 100 bucks. I'm not, I'm not kidding. 100 bucks yeah. was in my bank account when I told Jimmy, no thanks. Yeah. I'm trying to get a record deal. So, you know, from a hundred bucks to what happened to me, yeah. you know, holy shit. Good for you, man. <laughs> you deserved it. Uh, I'm well, curious. I want to know what, when you started, when these checks started rolling, I mean, if I'm thinking of myself, if I suddenly started getting a bunch of checks, I think I would hoard the first few because who knows when this is, how long this is going to last. I might buy myself right. something nice. Uh, but not too nice, just in case, you know. Correct, correct. But when then they, but then when they never stop, and I start to get a an idea that I'm going to be okay forever, basically, or you know, maybe I, ups and downs, but always pretty solid. Then I might start yeah. to buy some fun things, go on some fun vacations. Can you? I mean, can you tell us what like one of the big, like I, I at what the fu money that you made what did you go buy with that fu money what was the big thing the first big one a nice car a vacation a house what was it um well i you know there there was um i had a very old car so uh, not that i bought a new car um hmm. uh, but <clears throat> there was always this you know one uh mercedes that i liked uh and it was a few years old um it was a coupe and um so I bought I bought the car. Mm. That was my present present to myself. And then I was living in a, a two bedroom apartment in New Brunswick at the time. And uh, I went in and purchased my first home. Mm. So so those were the two first things. Um, you know, it wasn't any big grandiose home, but it was now something that I owned. Yeah. And, and you know that I was, you know, proud of. And, here I am. I, I, you know, kind of, and, and I, I, I used it. I used that, you know, at home to put a little recording studio in it, mm-hmm. and, and write other songs and continue to to work out of it. <clears throat> and uh, was proud to own it and brought other writers over. You know, I've written songs. Yeah. Dave, Dave Mason. I don't know mm-hmm. if you know Dave Mason or not. Sure. Yeah. Uh, good friend. And uh, huh. so. You know, he'd come and stay, and I'd, I'd bring my friends over, and they'd, yeah. they'd stay a week or two, and, and we'd write, you know. So it gave me that opportunity to, you know, kind of expand and do the songs and write the songs that I wanted to, that I liked, be- yeah. not that I had to write just to stay alive. Exactly, stay alive, yeah. Uh, and always in Jersey, You've stayed in New Jersey this whole time, right? Yeah, I, and I eventually, where where you're talking to me, 
um, I am down the shore, the Jersey Shore, mm. about uh, five miles outside of Asbury Park and about three miles from Red Bank, New Jersey, in a little town. Okay. Um, and and um, it, the town I live in is like a little, like Mayberry. Really? And it's a quiet, quiet little town, but you go five miles away and you're in Asbury and the place mm. is rocking. Great. Asbury's like, like the capital of New Jersey for music. Right. And uh, back in the 70s, when I played Asbury Park, um, the Stone Pony was called Mrs. J's. Oh, okay. I, I, used to, I used to play Mrs. J's, and then it became the Stone Pony. And then I used to play a place called the Sunshine Inn with the like a Atomic Rooster and you know mm. all of these psychedelic bands from the 70s, and uh, with the band Bolanga. So... I, I kind of always wanted to eventually move down to this area. And what I found out when I moved here was that the fan base that still uh, comes out and supports musicians of all ages, from tiny clubs to when I play the Count Basie, they are <clears throat> out in droves to support their musicians. Yeah. And so you have Bruce down here, and and then sure. you have Bon Jovi down here, yeah. and you just have a ton of very famous, you right. know, people, right. and, and you know, <clears throat> people will show up at some events because somebody said in the bathroom, "I heard Bruce might come to that gig." Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, are you married? I don't. What about you personally? Are you married? Do you have kids or anything like that? Uh, I I have a, a son. Um, he's from the Ukraine. Uh, I oh. adopted him. I am not married. I, I'm, I'm divorced. Okay. Uh, but I, I, you know, brought this child over with uh, my, my first wife. And uh, his name is Yvonne. And oh. um, he, he's just, um, you know, he's, he's the love of my life as far That's as, great. you know, your children. He's my son. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, That's great. And, uh, okay. So... Good. Okay. Uh, well, so let me uh, let me ask you this: When <clears throat> is and I've asked, I've been able to ask other people this same question, thankfully, because I think it's really interesting. Would you say that the uh, the success that you got uh, did it in any way become? And you sort of touched on this a minute ago, so maybe it did. Did it become a unmotivator to strive for? you know, what you had been striving for previously. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, you had yeah. been in the business yeah. for a long time. Bull Angus, your solo career, the knockouts. You finally hit it big with this song. Do you suddenly decide, I'm good? I, I don't need to fight for a record deal. I don't care about going on, playing concerts. I don't care anymore. I'm set. Is that, did that it, happen to you? That's complacency. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, in a way, in a way, um, you start to settle in, especially when you get married and, and you have a young child that's four years old coming from another country and, and your priorities change. It's about this child more than it is about you and your career mm -hmm. because you're financially secure enough to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I, I managed to band for a minute uh, and produce them called De Soul on Curb Records. And they were kind of like a Spanglish band. 
Sang in English and Spanish. They were really, really a good little band. Cool. And uh, and I would write with them, but I didn't have the same drive and motivation to be Frankie the Rock and Roll Star. Yeah. Um, I think that when I wrote Time of My Life, um, that the song became bigger than me as an artist, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then I became a songwriter. Yeah. If After that, I, I totally understand. When the song became a hit, were maybe labels who were not interested in promoting or pushing the knockouts anymore, did they come back around and said, say, uh, you know, if you want to put the band back together, we'll make this happen? Or were they sort of like, keep writing songs for other people? Or did they not tell you anything? Um, I had labels come to me and ask me to put the band back together. Um, but I wasn't you know, Tico now was doing yeah, really well with Bon Jovi. Yeah. Lee Fox, the bass player, was playing with Blondie. Yeah. Um, the keyboard players, you know, uh, I couldn't find one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Blake Levinson, the other one was up in Poughkeepsie. And so everybody was kind of spread out and yeah. moved on and into different things. So the knockouts wouldn't have been the knockouts. They would have yeah. been a, a new formulation of guys learning what... Got it these guys did and I said you know maybe it's better off to have the memory of this mm. be what it is yeah, and, and then try to move on to something that's maybe outside of my box you know yeah. and that's why I started writing uh, this this jukebox musical called Calling All Divas yeah tell that's me more about that what is it what's, what's going on tell me about it um, you know I, I met this um uh, young lady that uh, her name is Lisa Sherman and um, when I had moved down the shore and um, I, I had I started talking to her and I found she was a singer where you singing so I went to see her play and she was in front of about 2,000 people uh, in Point Pleasant on the beach and she got up on stage and she started talking to the audience and she started ingratiating the audience and I could see how they were like connecting to her and she hadn't sung yet. And I said, you know what? If she's any good, she's got them. Well, mm-hmm. four standing ovations later, Ooh. she comes off the stage and I go, so what are you doing next? What, mm-hmm. what is your next gig? And she said, well, I'm thinking about doing a show at the Basie and uh, it's called Decades of Divas. And so this like light bulb went off in my head and, and I said to her, I, I have a really 
kind of a cool idea that could be a story that, that you know these divas get together and and start to talk about who made them the singers they are today. So that show, Decades of Divas, we did at the Count Basie, and then we did uh, a couple other theaters. And then I found out that I could not trademark Decades of Divas because mm-hmm. there was a, a group in the Midwest in Minnesota that was called Divas Through the Decades, and it was too close. Mm-hmm. So I said, you know what, I'm going to change the name, and I'm going to rewrite the story. So I rewrote the story about four singers at different ages, different times in their career. So Lisa, Lisa, what I found out was she was a former Rockette and Broadway star, and she had her own television show for nine years in New Zealand. And so I said, okay, so you're you're like the mentor uh, of of the singers. And I said, so... You're one singer. I found a country singer, Trenna Barnes from Nashville, who was in a band called Cowboy Crush that was on Curb Records. And she also was an actress in a uh, stage play called Ring of Fire, which is the mm. Johnny Cash story. Right. So Trenna was another singer. And then I found uh, Carol Riddick, who is this unbelievable um, blues soul jazz singer from philadelphia and um she became uh, a part of the of the group and then i um was at the count basie doing a show with this young group that the count basie mentors called rocket and so they asked me to come in with stephen van zandt and all these other people and, and would i sing you know time of my life with one of the rocket kids and i said sure so they put me with uh, this girl, uh, Brittany Ann Aceta, and she started to sing, and my jaw dropped. And oh, really? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. I was about 17 at that time. So it took me a good two years of finding these girls and, and writing this story. And so two years later, I called Brittany Ann and I said, so one of the singers in this little play I wrote is a subway singer. What have you been doing? She goes, well, I live in New York and I'm going to acting school and I sing in the subway. No way. Perfect. I I said, what? Yeah. And I said, so come to the casting call. So Michael LaFleur is our director. And Michael um, also builds shows, live events and shows. So he helped build uh, Celine Dion's Las Vegas show okay. and shows for Disney and shows for Universal and Sarah Brighton. And so we all sat in a room and we watched all these girls come by and, and sing for us, looking for our subway singer and in walked little Brittany Ann and everybody's jaw dropped. And we went, That's okay, great. We, don't need to hear, we don't need to hear anybody else. Yeah. And, uh, and so the story is about these four girls, Brittany Ann, 19 years old, and these other girls in, the, in, thir- in their 30s and 40s and 50s. And they all compete against each other. This young, this young songwriter is trying to find the, the next voice for his hit song. And he wants to bring it to his boss, who, who owns a nightclub that everybody who was anybody came through. And uh, he goes and has all these connections and he wants to uh, bring 
and break one girl. And his boss goes, I'll just do one. Bring me the next voice mm-hmm. and we'll break her out of here. And so he brings him four voices and he can't make up his mind which one is better. And so the, at the end of the first act, you know, the kid says to him after he hears all the girls sing, so boss, who's it going to be? And the whole second act is the winner of that who he Oh, picked. interesting. Okay. And the, and the winner is all four of them. He makes them a group called the Unforgettables. And they do a whole concert, an hour-long concert of the Unforgettables. Cool. That and sounds great. And that's, and that's the show. We've, we've done it uh, in New York, in, a, in a, a theater in New York. And now we're heading to the Keswick Theater, which is outside of Philly. Mm-hmm. And then we'll come to the Count Basie over here in Red Bank. And uh, we're Staten Island and, you know, the Mayo up in Morristown. So there's, we're starting to put a tour together. Good. Fun. That's got to be a fun project to work on at this stage when, like you were saying, I mean, you are you can pay your bills comfortably, so you may as well work on something you're passionate about for fun. And it sounds like this is it. Well, you know what's neat about it is that each girl, as he finds each girl, he, he finds one in a recording studio. So instead of having sets, I've projected the stage. So it looks like a recording studio with projection. He finds the country girl in a funky, broken-down country bar. The stage all of a sudden transforms into a country bar. Nice. Then he gets on a subway, and and he's going to hear the last girl sing, and there's the girl in the subway. So you think you're in a subway. So it's all... That's pre- great. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of neat. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, good luck with that. Um, Thank you. I... Uh, I wanted to ask you a few more questions about the knockouts just because I, I love there. It's just such great. First of all, you can hear New Jersey in there to me and, <laughs> and it's just the great meat and potatoes rock that only Jersey would have put out at the time. It reminds me a little bit of foreigner, not that that's New Jersey, but there's some foreigner. There's some, just that great melodic rock. I'm curious back in the day. I mean, I've seen the, you know, there's the clip of you guys on American bandstand. I don't really mm-hmm. know how big you guys were. I know that you had hits, three of them, three big ones anyway. Mm-hmm. Were you, was it enough where you were headlining big shows? Who were you on tour with? How were you feeling at the time? Was it good enough to make a living? Um, it, it was survival money. It was wasn't, it? You know, yeah, you weren't going to retire on the money you were making from Frank and the knockouts, but um, you know, those type of top 10 hits are, are at a different um, magnitude uh, of airplay as opposed to, you know, time of my life, number one hit worldwide. And, and so there's, there's a different energy and, and, and financial reward from that. The, the knockouts were really survival money mm. um, to, to keep, to get to the next album, to go on yeah. tour. Some, some places we headline. Some places we were touring with Toto. Um, oh. Right in the beginning, now here's here's a, a little unknown fact. There wasn't really a Frankie in the Knockouts. It was me and Billy Elworth, the, the guitar player from Bull Angus, oh. were writing, writing songs in my apartment in New Brunswick on Livingston Avenue. <laughs> and he said to me, 
you know, I got a buddy of mine, Blake Levinson, who plays with Rosetta Stone, and maybe we bring a keyboard player over and we see if we can write together. And so we wrote a couple, two, three songs, and Bert Padel, who uh, was a, an accountant, sent it to Jimmy Einer, who said he liked it. Mm-hmm. And I went in to see Jimmy, and he goes, you got a band? I go, oh, yeah, man, I got a band. <laughs> and there was just me and Billy, you know, and Blake, who shows up every right. now and then. <laughs> so I, I I throw a couple more guys together when I get this deal and we go do the first record and everybody's known the song about you know all these songs for about 15 minutes mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and we record them and then Michael Kleffner who was our manager and now there's no band and he goes um, Frankie you know why don't you watch that show Fridays you know it, it was like Saturday Night Live but it was on Friday night and he right. goes and I said, well, why, why? What's up? And he goes, well, one of my other bands, uh, Starship, is on it. And oh. so, you know, just check them out. And I said, yeah. okay. So, so I'm watching the show, and all of a sudden at the end of the show, Larry David comes up to the front, and he goes, and next week's special guest, Frankie and the Knockouts. And I'm like, oh, What? <laughs> <laughs> so Michael calls me, he goes, hey, man, what, what do you think? What do you think? And I go, Michael, I gotta tell you something. Sit down. And he goes, "What?" I said, "There isn't a band. It's just uh, me and Billy." And he goes, "There better be a band by next Friday because you're that's live." Amazing. <laughs> no so way. I've never first, known that or seen that clip. What did you even play? We did "Sweetheart" and "Comeback." There you go. We 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 learned two songs. And then the second, our second gig was American Band. Oh my gosh, our, really? Our, our, yep, that was the next day. Oh. Our third gig, our third gig Sunday was Solid Gold with uh, with uh, Dion Warwick. Really? <laughs> and, and then, and then he said to me, "In two weeks, you're on tour with the Beach Boys. Put a band together. Wow. <laughs> okay, put some endings and some songs." No way. So he that had is, he put everything in motion before, like right off the yep. bat. I've got everything yep. lined up. We're gonna make we're gonna Frankie and the Knockouts. We're gonna make it a thing, and you've got yep. to rise up to this thing that I'm making, basically. Yeah, exactly. Amazing! Exactly. Wow! <laughs> wow! Well, good. You know I what? Wi- the, oh, go ahead. The, the man upstairs. I'm telling you, I've been blessed. <laughs> That's. That's one of my biggest takeaways from talking to you, honestly, Frankie, is I just, it's, 
I mean, it is kind of like winning the lottery. You just have had a very charmed life, but you, you're obviously talented and you can sing and you got the goods, but a lot of people have the goods and it never works out. And it did for you. I mean, but you're just I as truly of, blessed. I ate, I ate a lot of bologna sandwiches along the way and slept on a it. lot of floors and played it. a lot of toilet bowls. Yeah. You know, so across America two and three times. So mm. it, it, it was the belief that my parents and stuff, my dad was an opera singer. So this music was always going on in my house. Yeah. And, and my mom was like, don't you quit, you can make it, you know. So without that support, you know, I probably would end up selling cars or something. Yeah, yeah. I wondered that same thing. I wondered where Frankie would be if not for Dirty Dancing. Because as great as the knockouts were, I don't know that it would have continued. It sounds like it wouldn't have. Would he have gone solo? Would there have been enough muscle there to maintain a solo career? I don't know. But uh, I don't think so. I don't think yeah. so. I was getting too old, you know, to um, rekindle that flame. You know, yeah. you're, you're in your late your late thirties. You know, it's a young man's game. And even though I still was thin and you know I had long hair and looked younger, um, unless I decided to become a country star, because yeah. you, know, you can be a little older and still be a country star. I don't. I don't know if it would have happened. I don't know if Hungry Eyes would have came out on a, on a Frankie and the Knockouts record that I would have wrote time of my life. Yeah, good point. True. Yeah. And who knows that Hungry Eyes would have been a hit, no offense, if it had been a Frankie and the Knockouts. I mean, part of what, you know, it's the Correct. whole package. Those songs Correct. with that movie at that time, that's what right. makes it all an experience, not just the song by itself. You know what I mean? Especially, yeah, especially if MCA was uh, going to yeah. put it out. Yeah, very true. Um, okay, I got just a couple more questions. Um, yeah. Two things. Number one, I want to know, I want you to tell me a Patrick Swayze story because I miss him. And number two, I want to just hear what the craziest memory of your life is. When you kick back in Mayberry there in New Jersey and you just think, as we've discussed, I can't believe what's happened to me. What's the most amazing thing what's the thing that pops to mind tell me those things okay um well the most amazing memory you know there's it's hard to put your finger on just the one when when you've had several happen to you i believe um it. you know probably seeing my son come off the airplane mm. as a four-year-old you know and, and realizing that i was a father so that that was a big memory. Yeah. Um, I don't remember walking up on stage to get the Academy Award, but I do remember being up there. And mm, I, also, I wondered if that was going to be your answer. Okay. You know that that was a, a um, you know still to today. I you know I'm I'm like you know yeah. pinching myself. Where do you keep your Oscar? Is it in the bathroom? Is it in your office? Where is it? <laughs> I'm looking at it. So Are you? Yes. I call Oscar my manager. Good. So you know, he's he's sitting right over here to my left on a shelf and next to Oscar's the uh Golden Globe and in between those two is the ASCAP song of the year. Awesome. And I also got nominated that year for a Grammy. So mm -hmm. I have um that that happening. So there's 
I mean, that was a good year to remember. Yeah, you know, that was yeah. a, an unbelievable year for me. Yeah. So that whole year was a was a, an unbelievable memory. Um, you know, just having to have a career like this yeah. um, is astounding still to me today. Yeah. And, and when when I meet people that I don't know and and um, Lisa Sherman says uh, this is Frankie Previtt and oh hi how are you do you know who he is and I go Lisa please please he wrote Time of My Life and to see their <laughs> face light up yeah. and, oh my god you wrote that song Yeah. and the power of that song just is phenomenal it just blows it me away still it blows is. me away yeah yeah that's amazing. Do you have a Do you have a Patrick story? I don't know if you even knew him or if he just liked your song. Well, you know, I do have one. You know, I told you about the Academy Award with with him telling me how it changed the whole, mm -hmm. you know, feeling of of the actors uh, for the movie. But I, you know, Patrick called me. Uh, he was doing a charity and said, why, "Why don't you come down and hang with me?" So. I went down, and the charity was at um, at a hospital, Robert Wood Johnson Hospital, and uh, he he was doing something for women's heart disease, hmm. and um, so I go in the, in the back dressing room. We're sitting there, and I RCA had given me these two records that were painted. One was the cover of the first Dirty Dancing record hmm. with with uh, him and Jennifer, with you know the lift scene kind of thing. And then the other record was a, a red record of the second album cover, More Dirty Dancing. They put right. out a second record. I remember that. And, and, and he looks at me and he goes, man, I never got one of those. <laughs> I said, you did now. Oh. And I handed him a record. And he goes, dude, he goes, you got to sign this for me. And so I said, okay, I'll sign it on one condition. I brought two. You sign the other one. Nice. So I have that sitting in next to Oscar with Patrick's signature on it next that's to great. the uh, original lyrics of the song. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Um, this is probably I, I the answer is probably no. But I um, one of my all time favorite bands are the Blow Monkeys. And uh -huh. um, they appeared on the soundtrack, too. Did you ever meet them or have you guys ever had any kind of interface? Because I had him on the show, too, Dr. Robert. And according uh -huh. to him, they just sort of were brought in, told what to sing, sang it and left. And that was kind of it. Yeah, it was kind of strange. Um, no, I never met them to answer okay. that question. Okay. Um, but, you know, unique covers of songs are always cool to listen to and mm -hmm. interpretations. Uh, and, you know, the, a group like um, Postmodern Jukebox. I don't mm -hmm. know if you're familiar with them or not. Mm -hmm. uh, but they take all these pop songs and they make them sound like 40s songs. Mm -hmm. And so any anytime you get a band that, you know, can take a, an older song and kind of put their stamp on it, it is always was kind of neat to hear. Yeah, definitely. Um, can you remember anything about the Oscars? Can you give us one little tidbit? Um, even if it's like later that night... Did you, do you remember what you said? Had you planned what you were going to say before you got up there? Yeah, I did. I was sitting in the middle of the row next, and I brought my parents. My dad was sitting on one side, my mother was sitting on the other side of me. 
And I told the guys, I said, if by some chance we win, do not, because you're on the end, jump out and run up there because they're going to start the clock as soon as mm. you get up there. And <clears throat> I said, so give me a chance to get out. So I'm sitting there and they're getting ready to announce. And my father goes, I heard all the songs you're going to win. I got dad, mm-hmm. do not put the maloiki on me. <laughs> and they, and they, they, they announced that we're the winners and I'm trying to get out of the row. And of course, you know, mm-hmm. John D. Nicole and Mark was run right up there. Yeah. And I go, Oh my God. So I'm, I'm getting out. I got up there. And, um, I started my speech by saying there was a guy that called me and asked me to write a song for a little movie called Dirty Dancing and told me I was going to that he was going to change my life. And I and I'd like to thank Jimmy for changing my life. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I remember that. And then the, mm-hmm. the end of that speech was um, I'd like to thank my parents for the best duet of all. Mm-hmm. Very nice. Did. did you go to a party that night? Did you? Um, I did. Yeah, I went to the after party with, uh, you know, Patrick and and Bill Medley and, mm. and you know Jennifer Warren and all these movie stars and people and sat at the table and you know, kibitz yeah. and just took it all in. You know, it was funny the day before, uh, Samuel Goldwyn, uh, who was the head of the Academy Awards, you have this big lunch and and he, he's saying, all right, I just want you to all understand. Do not get too nervous if you get up there and win. Just remember, there's only three billion people watching you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. He he had approached me, Samuel Goldwyn, before the Academy Awards and wanted me to write a song for a movie called Mystic Pizza. Oh, right. Yeah. Which was, yeah, which was Julia Roberts, one of her first movies. Yeah. And he said, so I want you to go meet with this guy and, and cut a deal now before the awards. And, and and I want you to write a song. And, and I said, well, thank you. But uh-huh. I think I'll wait. I think I'll wait until after the award. I was just going to say, yeah, he thinks he can get you now for less money. Oh, what a, I, what a punk. I know. I know. <laughs> That's great. Oh, man. Well, look, Frankie, and I've been saying Previt my whole life, but it's Previt. I don't have to be yeah, so fancy, I guess. Okay. There you go. Well, good. Well, thank you, Frankie. I've been wanting to talk to you forever, and I'm so grateful that you gave me some time. Your story is fascinating, as you know. So thanks for sharing thank it with me. Thank you for having me, and, and uh, it's been a blast. You know, good. I never get tired of talking about the the times of my life. Yeah. You know? uh, well, and I... I hope that I hope I asked some slightly more unique questions, something different than what you always ask answer. But yeah, who knows? But yeah, anyway, yeah. okay, good, yeah. good. Well, that makes me feel better. There you have it, Frankie Previtt. Uh, I mean, that's nobody in the history of the world has that story. What a crazy story! I hope you guys enjoyed that. I did. Love this tune. And check out that box set. Even if you got to stream it on Spotify or whatever. If you like that meat and potatoes rock and roll of the late 70s, early 80s, that melodic rock, Frankie and the Knockouts were great at it. Um, Now, next week, next week is our fourth birthday. And as you know, I always try to make that fourth or that birthday guest someone very special. Nothing against Frankie, but it's typically somebody who we've had 
a lot of requests for or whose name comes up in a lot of episodes or what have you. And if you've been following on Facebook and a little bit on Twitter, you might know who this person is. It is one of our one of the top five. I've expressed many times on here who are we have a top five most requested guests. It is one of those people, and this person has been more or less a recluse for 25 years or more. And I found them and got them to talk to me. So I hope you will come back and check that out. It's going to be great. Huge thanks, as always, to Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thanks, buddy, for all that you do. Uh, you guys know how to find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. We should have a bonus episode coming out later this week. And uh, otherwise, we will be back next week with our fourth birthday guest. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you then.